Well, I'm Asian, in case you don't know. More uh, specifically, I'm half Indian and half Filipino, and I was born in Hong Kong. I talk about where I come from a, a lot because I'm proudly Asian, just Asian. And, uh, but there was a time when I wasn't proudly just Asian. There was a time when, if you asked me, what's one thing you'd like to change about my, uh, myself, I, I would tell you, it's to be less Asian. There was a time when I would go around telling people that I was half American. I would drop my Indian or my Filipino side and tell people I was half American, and no one would ever question it because my, I, my accent isn't distinctly Asian. I was particularly ashamed of my Filipino side because of where they stood in the social hierarchy in Hong Kong. You see, growing up, I observed that Filipinos, most Filipinos in Hong Kong, were domestic helpers. And because of that, they sat at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And I didn't want to be connected with them in that way, and so I would distance myself from my Filipino identity and shed that, side of, that part of myself. But before I go on, I want to acknowledge the sacrifices that Filipino domestic helpers make when they leave their families in the Philippines and look after another family in Hong Kong. It takes a lot of strength, a lot of courage, and they often do this with very little pay, um, living in very poor working conditions and living conditions, um, and they should re be admired for that. Anyway, I shed my Filipino identity and I adopted a more Western identity. I went to an international school, and so I wanted to be like the kids that went to that school. I dressed like them, I listened to their music, I eat their food, I'd watch their movies, all in an attempt to assimilate to their culture because I thought that they, who they were represented the dominant culture, which was that of the American and British expats that were living there. Then I thought that if I behaved like them, I would be placed higher on the social hierarchy. Even my family reinforced this. My mother would warn me against staying out in the, in the sun too long, not because she was worried about me getting sunburned, but so I wouldn't get darker. And my aunt did the same thing. She'd buy me bleaching soap from the Philippines to brighten my skin. And I never thought anything of it because everywhere in Hong Kong you see whitening products, even to this day. But trying to be more white wasn't the most harmful thing. The most harmful and shameful part was that I began seeing myself as better than my Filipino counterparts because of my ability to assimilate to dominant culture. And that's really hard for me to admit. I wish I could tell you that over time that changed as I grew older, but it didn't. So fast forward, and I, after going to college in Australia, I moved back to Hong Kong, and I started looking for work. And I had a really hard time looking for work. I went to a bunch of interviews that never went anywhere, until a friend of mine uh, hooked me up with a job at an international school working as a teacher's assistant. And a couple of months into that, another friend who owned a tutoring agency offered me a job as a tutor. And I jumped at the opportunity to make some really good extra side cash. And so I went there after the first session, and it went really well. And as I was leaving, the mother stopped me and asked me a few questions. She asked me where I was from, and where I studied, and what my qualifications were. And it seems pretty innocent at first, right? But then these questions 
kept persisting every week after every session. She'd ask me things like, how long did you study in Australia for? Where do you teach now? How many students do you have? And where did you teach before? She even rang my school to, to verify my employment there. And I had an inkling as to why this was happening, but I wasn't 100% sure until one week she straight up asked me why I didn't look Indian. And it's because I had kept from her that I was half Filipino. I had a suspicion that if I told her I was half Filipino, I was afraid that she wouldn't see me as as capable as an English tutor, as a native English speaker. But my suspicions were right, because then she asked me how I could afford to go to Australia for school. She asked me, again asked me what my qualifications were. She asked me how, what, my, what job my, da my dad had that could afford me to go to Australia. And instead of challenging her on the inappropriateness of her questions, I decided, nope, I'm gonna press on. I'm gonna prove to her just how good an English tutor I was. And I did, I pressed on every week answering her extremely inappropriate questions until it came to our last session. And I was so convinced she is not gonna renew any more sessions with me. She's probably going to request for a native English speaking tutor. But to my surprise, she asked if I'd consider continuing to tutor her son and that she'd paid me cash at front instead of going through the agency. And I was pretty chuffed. I felt pretty good about myself and thought, wow, she finally sees me as just as good a tutor. But that proud and happy feeling quickly disappeared when she only offered me half of my pay. And that's what I realized, that it didn't matter how good a job I did, that because I wasn't a native English-speaking tutor, no matter how good my qualifications were, I was a qualified teacher and I had a diploma in TESOL, which is teaching English as a second language. It didn't matter to her. What wasn't worth the same pay, that because of my race, she quantified my worth as less than. And this experience added to the internalized racism that was festering inside me. The self-hate, the disgust, and the disrespect I had for my Filipino heritage which I then projected onto my fellow Filipinos were all as a result to of a desire to align to people I viewed as being more powerful because I thought I could be seen as worthy if I did. I understood that if I could only just behave the way that they did, acted less Filipino and assimilate to the dominant group, then I could be accepted by them, that I could be seen as powerful as them. Anything short of that, I understood to be substandard, less than. Anything less than that, I, took, I thought would put me lower on the social hierarchy. And that's where the Canaanite woman stood in the passage that we said, that we, uh, said earlier. The Canaanites were especially disliked by the ancient Jews because they were historical enemies. They, um, the Canaanites are the descendants of the grand the grandson of Noah, who is Canaan, and they lived on the land of Canaan. So the, it was written in the Bible that Abraham had, God had promised this land to the descendants of Abraham, so they would fight over this land. And the Canaanites were also idol worshipers, and so they were seen as unclean and immoral. 
In contrast, the Asian Jews viewed themselves as the chosen people, as children of God. They dictated the standard of how one must live and that how one must live through their religious, religious practices, and anything that fell short of that was considered substandard, less than, other. And the passage we read earlier is written from the, is from the Gospel of Matthew which is most likely written by Matthew, who is one of Jesus' disciples, and also a fellow Jew. And this account, this gospel account, was written specifically for a Jewish audience. Remember that. So the disciples don't see it as out of ordinary when Jesus ignores her at first, because the Jews and Gentiles don't fraternize. So when they urge him to send her away, he responds by saying, he's only come for the Jewish people. Now, that's an interesting response. That's very unlike the all-loving, all-welcoming Jesus that I know. And then this woman begs for his help in healing her daughter, and Jesus responds by saying, he wasn't going to take from the children of God by giving and give it to a dog. Now, hold up. Wait, 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 wait. Back up just a minute. Jesus, indirectly, but pretty directly, just referred to this woman as a dog. And as if that wasn't shocking enough, this woman challenges Jesus, a man, a rabbi, someone who is socially superior. And instead of walking away, she challenges him and says that even she is worthy to eat from that table because a dog eats the crumbs that falls from the, ma from the master's table. After this tense and awkward exchange, Jesus praises this woman uh, for her faith, heals her daughter, and then sends her on her way. Now, before I dive into this passage, let's quickly put this exchange into context. Let's see where Matthew places this story and why he's chosen to focus on specific details. Because Mark, this story, you can read this story in the, in the Gospel of Mark as well, but Mark retells it slightly differently with different things occurring before and after. And I think the reason behind these sequence of events is because Matthew is writing to a specifically Jewish audience and because of bread. And it's why we have bread right here this morning. Yes, bread. Jesus shows us his indiscriminate heart towards the people of Israel and towards the Gentiles through bread. And that's what we're going to start. Now, a chapter before, we read that Jesus was on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, which is a largely Jewish area. And Matthew writes about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. You all know this story, right? It feeds the 5,000 and then collects back 12 baskets full of leftovers. But what's the difference between these two references to bread in these stories? First, it's the contrast of bread in abundance in the story of feeding the 5,000 versus the scarcity of bread in the form of a crumb in his conversation with the Canaanite woman. And so it prompted me to think, what does bread symbolize in the Bible? Bread symbolizes many things, and you can do entire studies on dough being kneaded, bread baked, uh, bread broken, and bread eaten in the Bible, but we're going to focus on two things. Um, firstly, Bread is what is shared to socially bond with one another. Jesus breaks bread with his disciples in the Last Supper to signify a bond between them. So we can assume that from this, that bread is shared with those that you respect and have concern for. So Jesus, in sharing with the 5,000, Jesus and his disciples bond with them. And 
In the act of sharing bread communally, they form respect and care for one another. Bread is, so it would be completely out of the norm to speak of sharing bread with their enemy, with the Canaanites. They don't want to, there's no desire to bond with them, not even a little bit, not even a crumb's worth. Bread is also symbolic of God's provision. So we see in the story of feeding the 5,000 that God blesses the people of Israel by increasing and multiplying God's provision. And what's the opposite of that? It's famine, bread withheld. And it was thought that bread withheld, famine, and the scarcity of bread was the mark of God's judgment for their wrongdoing. So if you sinned, then famine would come. Then what follows this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the story of Jesus walking on water. And we read about how Peter, when Jesus calls out to him, Peter steps out of his boat onto the water and drowns. And then Peter calls out to Jesus and he cries out, Lord, save me. Matthew draws another parallel. He prepares us, the reader, for the similar cry of the Canaanite woman, Lord, help me. But here's the contrast. In response to Peter, Jesus says, you of little faith. And in response to the Canaanite woman, Jesus says, woman, you of great faith. So they both acted in faith, one in stepping out into the water and the other in refusing to take no for an answer. One in believing and having faith and the other doubted. But Jesus helped them both. Now we move on and we read about the conversation, a conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and his disciples where he compares ritual cleansing, uh, ritual cleanliness with moral cleanliness. And the Pharisees bring up the tradition of the elders, which is the passing on of oral laws like washing your hands before a meal. And, but why point out this particular practice? Why talk about the ritualistic cleansing of self before partaking in a meal? a meal like perhaps bread. Are they saying that their practice ensures that they're clean enough to receive God's bread or receive God's blessing and provision? Are they saying that those that do not commit to these practices are unclean and unworthy to receive God's bread and therefore unworthy to receive God's blessing? Do you see where I'm going here? Then Jesus argues that they put more weight on these laws than the laws of Moses. And, that, and he quotes Isaiah. And he says to the Jew, uh, quotes Isaiah, he quotes the Jewish scriptures and says, accuses them of practicing human laws. And Matthew was being very strategic when he places this conversation right that Jesus has with the Pharisees right before his conversation with the Canaanite woman. Jesus very explicitly calls out the, the Pharisees for believing that without these practices, people are defiled, immoral, and unclean. These people are the Gentiles and includes the people of Canaan. And right, before, right after this conversation is when we meet the Canaanite woman in a region of predominantly Gentile people who are viewed as immoral and unclean. It is no coincidence that we see these stories all occur one after another. It is as though Matthew wants to make it clear to the re reader, look at this, we are so willing to share our bread with multitudes only if they're fellow Jews, but with Gentiles, 
we don't even want to share a crumb. With a Gentile, we deem them as unclean and unworthy of our bread supply, which is symbolic of God's provision and blessings. Instead, we cut them off. And remember what, re what withholding bread symbolizes? The mark of God's judgment. In other words, the writer Matthew wants to make it explicit to the reader that the attitude of the ancient Jews that the ancient Jews had towards the Gentiles was that the Gentiles were only worthy of the wrath and the judgment of God because they did not meet the standards that have been passed down by the oral traditions. And here's the kicker. Even the Canaanite woman had come to believe that she too was unworthy unclean, inferior, and as lowly as a dog, but she still wished to partake in just a crumb's worth of the blessings being offered by the Son of God. And Jesus shows us with the parallel cry of Peter and the Canaanite woman that he doesn't discriminate between their races. And he furthers that point with bread, because guess what happens next? After this story, we read that he goes on to perform a parallel miracle of feeding 4,000, the same way that he fed 5,000 in the north end of the Sea of Galilee. But this time, he feeds 4,000 in a predominantly Gentile region. He feeds predominantly Gentile people, showing the disciples that his blessings are not just limited to the children of God, but that his blessings extend to the Gentile people. He does not discriminate between their races. We see bread again in abundance. Bread is in abundance for the Jews, and bread is in abundance for the Gentile people. That their blessings are not to be reduced to breadcrumbs fallen from the table for dogs, even if that's how they perceive themselves to be and all they deserve. But their, but their blessings excuse me, are the same as the Jews. The Gentiles may not have met the standards of cleanliness set out by the elders, set out by a culture that marginalizes them and sees them as less than. But Matthew shows the readers that Jesus does not place those measures on them. Jesus does not discriminate. Jesus blesses this woman and blesses 4,000 more following her, encouraging the disciples and thus the readers to do the same. So obviously, this story, uh, in this story, we can see that through the actions of Jesus, God's love tr transcends racial lines. And here's how my life resonates with this story. As a Filipino woman growing up in Hong Kong, I understood that I was substandard. I accepted this worldview of Filipinos, and I adopted that identity, just like the Canaanite woman I understood herself to be as lowly as a dog. I viewed my fellow Filipinos the same way. I understood that we were less than. Who we were and our work wasn't worth as much. I was frustrated with the way that Filipinos were viewed and how they were treated, and I feared that I would be seen as the same, but instead of fighting for their equal treatment, I distanced myself. I thought that the way to combat this was to continue to to be seen as more like the dominant culture. I wanted to measure closer to the dominant culture that was set by the West. I didn't recognize 
the unfair treatment of Filipinos in Hong Kong growing up. I measured them up against the standard that I grew up with, and I felt that if they didn't measure up, then perhaps they weren't working hard enough. In that, I didn't recognize the daily hurdles that they face. I didn't recognize their stories. I didn't try to find them out. Then six years ago, I moved to the US where Filipinos don't have this stigma, and I bought into another worldview, and that was the myth of the model minority, who are measured up against a white American standard. It made so much sense to me because of all the other skewed ideologies that I bought into growing up. William Patterson first coined this term in describing Japanese Americans and their success stories in the 1960s. The term model minority comes from the stereotype that Asians are studious, law-abiding, that they have strong work ethics and strong familial values. Moses Y. Lee defines it as the belief that hard work can take you anywhere you want in this country, regardless of your race or ethnicity. Others who did not benefit from the system, system simply lacked the willpower or ambition. Makes sense, right? That's how I was brought up. I understood that if you, were, if you wanted to succeed, if you wanted to be successful, you had to work hard. And if you were struggling, it's because you didn't put in the hard work. I bought into and participated in a lie about Asians being the model minority because they more closely met the standards set by the West. And in Hong Kong, I bought into and participated in a lie that view Filipinos as less than and put them at the bottom because they were so far from the, from the acceptable standard. Once again, a standard set by the West. And I wish, I wish, I wish that it didn't take me 30 years of my life to realize that I was worthy. Because like the Canaanite woman, up until a few years ago, I, I quantified my worth as the size of a breadcrumb, unless I could measure up to a standard set by the West. And like the Pharisees, I placed these expectations on Filipinos and other minorities too, believing we were only worthy if we met those standards. If we met those standards of beauty, the standard of, health, of wealth, of intelligence, and a way of life. But now, today, as every day I become more and more woke, I want to act like Jesus in this story and hope to be part of changing the way Filipinos and the greater Asian American population are seen. Like Jesus, I hope to see people beyond their labels and consider their story, their experiences, and their history. Like Jesus, I hope to call people to come together and bond and break bread and find respect for, for one another, tearing down racial boundaries, tearing down racial stereotypes, and tearing down the unfair expectations we that are set by the dominant culture. Because here is the problem with the myth of the model minority, as outlined by human rights activist Yuri Kojima. Model minority reinforces pre-existing stereotypes. It also undermines the, ex the experiences of marginalized Asian Americans. These misplaced generalizations render their experiences trivial at best and invisible at worst. The stereotype perpetuates conflict between communities of color, prohibiting solidarity and promoting racial hierarchies. In order to move forward, 
We need to participate, we need to partner together in refusing to participate in and perpetuating in the myth of the model minority. And I think that's something that we can all do, whether we identify as Asian American, or like me, you moved here from another country, or you identify as white American, or African American, or Latino American, or any combination of these labels. Let's all do these things. First, go and read about where the myth of the model minority came from and why it hurts Asian Americans. Read about how it affects other minority groups in the United States. Talk about it in your small groups. Talk about whether or not you have formed stereotypes based on the myth of the model minority. Secondly, go bond and share bread and be in relationship with Asian Americans and get to know them as human beings, as individuals first and foremost. Don't make your conversation or your relationship with them be about a fascination with their otherness. See them as people first because it is from there that you can dispel the stereotypes about Asian Americans. Thirdly, quit expecting minorities to measure up to an unfair standard. That's something that we can all do because it places unnecessary pressure on all minorities. Don't perpetuate something that shames others for missing the mark. Instead, find strength and beauty and, and value in minority voices and products. Go listen to their songs, read their books, watch their movies, and buy their products. Lastly, come to the workshop on race and faith that Jonathan mentioned earlier. Learn about ways in which we can be advocates and participate in change. Like Jesus, we need to recognize when our worldview has influenced the way we see and label others and act against it by working towards making things right and calling out systems that are unfair and recognize that worthiness and value is not determined by one set standard. And now I want to speak to my fellow Asians that are in this room and those that are listening online. I want you to know that if you've been hurt by the myth of the model minority, by that label, I want you to know that you are enough. I want you to know that these standards are man-made and made to drive a wedge between us and other minority groups here. But you are enough and your value is more than just a crumb's worth. I also want to acknowledge my own participation in perpetuating this myth and ask for your forgiveness. I ask your forgiveness when I saw myself as better than you because of my ability to assimilate to dominant culture. I ask your forgiveness in labeling you and not considering your history or your experience. I promise to move forward by celebrating and recognizing the diversity and the uniqueness of our cultural identity and encourage others to do the same. And so now as the band comes up, we're going to close by coming together communally and breaking bread together. And that's what we did first service. So you can see that some of this bread has already been taken. But I'd like the idea of our first service community and our second service community coming together and bonding together. So what I want us to do is invite you to come up when the band begins playing and come up and tear a piece of this loaf like this and dip it into the wine to signify 
that we are all sharing in God's blessings, that we are all coming together as equals, and that we all, each, each of us have a place at the table. Let us pray. Dear God, as I was speaking and looking around this room, I am so thankful for the diversity of our community. I'm so thankful that we are genuinely in relationship with one another and building bonds with one another. And I ask God that as we step out, that you encourage us, you encourage us to continue in that, God. I want to pray, God, for those who have been hurt by this label. And I ask God that you bring them healing and you begin working in them so that they understand that they don't have to meet a standard to be seen as worthy. And that goes for anyone, whether they're Asian or to identify as a racial minority, that, they, that you love them as they are. In your name I pray, amen.